We good? Yeah, you can hear it. Hey guys, we're going to get started. If anyone's outside, uh, we can all come in. All right, everybody. I know people are still coming in, but we'll uh, we'll get started. And uh, while we have the regular adult meeting, we also have uh, um, we also have our high school class uh, with us today as well, uh, because because why not? Uh, they were going to hear me talk anyway, so this is uh, uh, it's a good opportunity. Um, Well, sorry, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, one God, amen. Uh, as I was talking to the clergy about, about, this, uh, about this meeting, I guess a few, a few people had asked for, uh, uh, for us to share, for, for me to share a little bit about um, the experience I just had at, at, in, at the Olympics in Tokyo. And um, so uh, I thought today we could use some of this time to... Uh, uh, talk about it a little bit, but almost in the context of it being, uh, um, I may not, I may not go deep into uh, what I would call a dogmatic talk right now, but we could have a little, uh, a little fun with this. I've, I've said before, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I didn't go to seminary, right? I didn't go to, uh, uh, so I'm not a theologian, right? But this is uh, any time that we can see uh, our experiences or get an experience that. Where we can see God in these experiences, I think, uh, then I, I can reflect that back. And um, so I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I'm also uh, I apologize to anybody since it's been about three weeks. I think three weeks since I've been back. And uh, it's uh, many people come and want to talk about it. Oh, it must have been really cool, or you know, like share all these experiences that that happened. And I, and I've probably been a little rude, and I apologize. And that's because it was because it was so difficult. It was like a really difficult thing, and it was because it was such a a five, it was a five-year process, you know, that got to that point, and it was a really challenging time. Um, I already had my breakdown in front of the high school kids, so uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, maybe not do that today. But uh, uh, I, it, there's, there's a sense where it's not, uh, where it's not like I wasn't joyful about it, right? I didn't find the joy in it. So I've been trying in the last few weeks to find the joy and, and the peace in this, you know, so that I could, we could share some of the good lessons that came, that came out of this. And so. Um, and I would say, Marchie, too, for your talk, couldn't have come at a better time uh, uh, today because we're going to talk about something that really doesn't matter, right? So I'm going to talk about something that doesn't matter, right? Because this is all going to go to dust anyway. Um, and so my, uh, it's, it was perfect timing. It was perfect timing, right? And so uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I go back to, a, I, I think I've used this quote in giving talks before, but I, there was a... Uh, uh, one of my favorite basketball coaches, his name is Tony Bennett. He's the head basketball coach at University of Virginia. Um, and he said once, one, he once said uh, about his father, so his father was a pastor and a basketball coach. So his father was a priest and a basketball coach. And he used to he'd say this saying, he would say, 
Um, because I know what truly matters, I can enjoy what seems to matter. You know, what seems to matter, like this seems to matter. Oh, talk about the Olympics, it was really cool. It seems, it seems to matter, but it really doesn't. And what I'm trying to center myself in is because I know what truly matters, because we know what really matters, what's really important, what we do inside these walls, how we live our lives, then, then I can enjoy what seems to matter, right? So what, what seems to matter is out there, and what truly matters, frankly, is right here. And if you were to tell me, <clears throat> to compare the experience of, you know, having my son dressed as a deacon versus winning a gold medal, they're comparable, right? And then I would say com more than comparable, I would say I'd rather, if given the choice, pray with them every Sunday, right? Because that experience lasted, the joy of winning the medal there probably lasted, as I told my wife, I think like six hours. It's about six hours. Because then the pressure starts coming again next, well, when's the next one? What are you going to do next, right? And that's the difference when you, and we could talk about this in a lot of ways, about being in a performance situation. And, and Mark, Marchie said it again in his talk, you think about the rich man, you think about the people with the wealth and the possessions and the achievements, Many of them aren't happy. I'm, one, I'm probably one of them in that sense, right? Like in the sense that it's hard to find joy when you're performing at that high, at that high of a level, right? That there's not, there's not a lot of joy that comes with it. And it's ironic because, um, well, I'll say it again, because I know it truly matters, I can enjoy what seems to matter. It's ironic because there's this philosophy of Olympism. And this idea of Olympism is that you don't have to read the whole thing, but it's this like way of life. It's not supposed to be about winning medals and like achieving. It's supposed to be about trying to pursue my best self. This is like the, the philosophy and the and if in with joy, if you read it, it says like it's to create a way of life based on the joy and effort and educational value of a good example for universal fundamental ethical pr principles. It's like this philosophy of what would be Olympism, and that's what we're supposed to try to use as our motivation to compete in the Olympics. Because as you know, winning is really, really hard, right? And there were 10,000, maybe 11,000 athletes competing, right, in the Olympic and Paralympic Games. How many of them walk away with a medal? But how many of them dedicated their whole life, right, to this thing? So if it was just about winning, there has to be like some other thing that it's about along the way. But just like any human philosophy, right, just like any human thought, it's flawed. Right? This idea of like, we're gonna have a lot of fun and we're gonna try to be our best selves and we hear this a lot in these. I'm gonna be the best version of myself, right? I'm gonna become the best version of myself and I'm gonna be joyful in the prospect of the best version of myself. It's flawed, this philosophy is flawed and it's frankly rooted in inequity, right? It's rooted in inequity because not everybody gets a fair shot, right, at, at, at getting this, right? And frankly, it's a huge privilege to even compete at that stage. Think of the privilege of all the athletes that had to have the resources and able to get to that point, right? The resources it takes to get there. It's a, it's a huge privilege. But then there's pressure that comes with it, too. So when we think about this for us, I used to think this pressure was, it made us really nervous, right? Like, I'm still even really nervous talking about it now, right? It's like, it makes you really, really nervous to be at that level. But then you have to turn it and flip it and say that pressure is a privilege, right? That, it, that of all that inequity that I described, that the equity that comes our way, the privilege that comes our way is that pressure is a privilege. And that's how you have to describe it to people. When people talk about the athletes that they've seen and watched through the course of these Olympics, you say, some of us joke, right? There are a lot of people who are joking about like Simone Biles and like all these other people, mental health. I mean, how, come on, she's the best. If she's gonna be the best, she's gotta compete. Some of you have heard these stories. Forgive me if I go fast because if you're not uh, into, in, into all the pop culture references or <laughs> athletic references, right? But Simone Biles, right, drew, drew, withdrew from an event because she was a gymnast, didn't feel good. She got like the twisties, they call it in gymnastics, right? And she felt nervous of getting on, the, uh, uh, on her event. If she fell, if she falls, she's paralyzed for life. She didn't feel good, she sat down. And the amount of people that like just railed on her, right? Were like, 
come on, she, she, Michael Jordan would never sit out, right? You can't be the best athlete, you go. But that pressure is hard. That pressure is a lot. And we all felt that pressure being there, and especially that pressure, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but the way it was being in a bubble, being in, in that environment is really, really hard. So we have to now think about this, that pressure that we were feeling is a privilege, right? Like not everybody gets to feel that pressure, right? Not everybody gets to feel that heightened intensity. And so that's where I'm trying to find the story, that it was a privilege, you know, even, even to feel that along the way. Um, the last time I gave the, uh, uh, one of the last times I gave the adult meeting was, was after the Rio Olympics. So generally you guys only want me to give the adult meeting after the Olympics. So I've, I've gotten the trend, you know? Uh, but it was, I, I did go to the Olympics in 2016 in, in Rio, uh, and we won there. And when, the la when I gave that talk, I remember, and I didn't put the pictures up when I did it, um, this, was, this is Rio, this is 2016, we, we, the, our women won the gold medal there uh, as well. Um, and, but I remember when I gave that talk, uh, I talked to you guys about something that I was, I was feeling when I was there, which was this is the some of the inequity and the pressure I'm talking about, which is, this is the room, this is the view out of my, uh, out of my hotel room in Rio, and that's Christ, you know, Christ the Redeemer, right? The, now you could see Christ the Redeemer from there, uh, which is cool. The view on the right, the view on the other one is the view from the Team USA house, which is generally, again, none of these things happened at this Olympics because no one was allowed to go. It was only the performance people were allowed to go, right? So we used to have, there's, every country has a house that everybody gathers and it's like parents and, you know, supporters and sponsors and, you know, and everybody, that's where you gather after every game and everything, right? And so that was the view from the Team USA house on the right, that was the view from my room. And if you actually look through, right, on the, uh, on the left-hand side, that's a close-up of what a favela looks like, right? If you know Brazil and you know what a favela is, right, that's where the poorest of the poor live. And on the right, same thing. That's Copacabana Beach, if you heard of Copacabana Beach, the nicest beaches in the world. Okay, great, but right next to Copacabana Beach is a massive, massive favela, right, on the end. And so we were up on the Team USA house and I'm celebrating this thing and I remember coming home and talking to my family about this, like, man, this is, feels weird. So we were here celebrating on, on literally on top of people's uh, shacks on top of their shanty town. Like, that's where they put the USA house. I'm standing here and I look down and we're like above these, like, so what is this about? Like, what are we doing? Going back to what, what is the meaning of all this, right? Where's the meaning behind this? So we're here celebrating that we're the best at all these things and we're, and you know, we're pounding our chests and there's literally people starving under our feet, right? It really messed with my head because then I come back and I'm, this is what I gave them when I gave this talk a few years ago. It's like, well, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Like, what, is, what, is, what am I really gaining out of this? So again, that joy of that gold medal lasted like an hour, right? It was like an hour. We left, and then I just saw these people, and I'm like, uh, this isn't fun. There's no joy. There's no joy here, right? Where's the joy? I'm supposed to be happy while they're hungry, you know? And I'm not trying to depress everybody, right? But just think, put this in context of what really, what truly matters, right, for us. Um, this is, a, this is a, the village in Tokyo where we, we were just were. So in the... Uh, uh, the whole city was on lockdown. So the state of emergency the whole time we were there, right? State of emergency the whole time, we were the only people allowed to go were essential staff, uh, which is essentially performance people, and that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm the, uh, the director of the program, so I'm the general manager. I oversee both the men's and women's teams from top to bottom, so I manage all the operations. So even the people above me, a lot of people above me, like boards of directors and all the, all the suits, they didn't get to go, right? Generally, it's their time to like, and wine and dine, sponsors come, Visa, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, blah, blah, right? All these things happen. None of that stuff happens. State of emergency for, still, Japan is still in a state of emergency as we speak. So within the, kind of that middle scene right there, that's the, what would be the Olympic Village, right? That's the Olympic Village. Those, every one of those buildings housed either multiple countries or countries like ours. The whole building is, uh, 
is us. It's all Team USA people in one building. In other buildings, you'd have a kind of a cross mix of, uh, if you're a country like Egypt, which I'll reference more than once in this talk, you know, um, I don't know if you guys know, um, we're, we were born in Egypt and many of us were. If you weren't, you know, uh, uh, I'll reference some of those countries too. But if you're a country like Egypt, you shared your building with like five other countries, right? So it was like Egypt was with like Serbia, Greece, you know, the Turks. So there's some interesting uh, political relations that go in there. But, uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, not the Russians. The Russians were on their own, right? Uh, and in fact, and I, I guess I said we can have some fun with this, but the Russians, one really interesting thing about the Russians, right? There's no fans at this thing, right? And they couldn't allow, they weren't allowed to compete uh, with, uh, with the name Russia, right? So they couldn't, because of the doping crisis, because they've been uh, charged with cheating, they couldn't put the Russian flag up and they couldn't have their national anthem played. So they played Tchaikovsky. Like every time it was time for their national anthem, they played like this Tchaikovsky uh, thing. And then when they won, right, they, they couldn't hold up their flag or do anything. And, and if there were fans there, it would have been brutal. Because everybody who was there, every time a Russian athlete got up or a Russian team did anything, they got booed. You're talking about like other athletes booing other athletes. It's like it never happened. Talk about Olympism and joy and you know, cheering for each other. They just got booed. Or like kind of the, normally, like I, uh, I got to go to some... Normally, I got to go to a lot of events. This time, I didn't get to go to a lot of events because, because again, the COVID and the bubble. But I went to synchronized swimming and diving and swimming because we share the same venues, right, where all the aquatics are together. And there was the, the Russian synchronized swimming team are like gnarly, right? If you ever, like, like Google Russian uh, synchronized swimming, you'll see the, the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life. And uh, they're really, really good. They go and they announce, and the place just went silent. Usually, everyone kind of gets up, claps for everybody. They introduce the Russian synchronized swimmers, and the place just, the whole stadium just goes silent. They were done, and everyone just starts booing them, and they won the gold medal. It was a trip, right? So talk about how the intersection of the world, right, kind of comes in. That's what happens. Um, so if this whole town is in a state of emergency, we were only allowed to be in the confines of this village. And, and even because I'm the director and not the athlete, the coach, I was in a hotel that was like around the corner. So my hotel is to the left. And my hotel, as I've described to some people, is from this, from here, to that wall, to the start of the altar, to here. It's this box. Right? Many, I'm sure many, some people have traveled to Japan, you know what a, like a Japanese business hotel looks like, right? It's like take your room in the cruise ship and then cut it in half, right? And it's like that step up bathroom where it's the same handle to turn on the shower as to turn on the sink, right? So it's like one handle, right? Everything, if you flush the toilet, right? The, 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 the uh, shower gets cold, all those things. And so we were, <laughs> I was stuck in this thing for three and a half weeks by myself. So between, so every day I'd leave that little hotel room to go to the village, meet, meet the team, work, work with them there, and then we would take a bus from there to the competition and back, and that was it. Three and a half weeks, that's all you got to do, right? So it was bus, hotel, eat, compete, that's it. So it drives you a little crazy, right? So you think a little bit again about mental health and how do you keep yourself going, how do you keep, like, we'll talk about that pressure, pressure being a privilege, but, um, but that village itself, is, there's some interesting things that come out of it. Um, <clears throat> there's another look at it, this is, if you get a look at this picture, there's, a, there's always two things they do at each Olympic, or several things, but there's a row of flags, right? So 206 countries competed in the Olympics. Sometimes it goes from like 203 to 209, but it's usually somewhere in the middle. This time it was 206 con different countries competed, countries I'd never heard of, and, I'm a, and I was a history teacher, right? I was a world history teacher, and there were countries that I'd heard of for the first time, right? That's how big the world is, and I didn't know. I was embarrassed, right? But... There's a row, you can see there's the row of the flags. It was, on, it was on Tokyo Bay, and then each of those buildings, right, like that far back corner, you see kind of Australia, some of these things. That was like the Australia. They were a big enough country where they had their own, their own building as we walked through. I think by far, oh yeah, and this is at the end of, this is at the end of uh, 
They do the row of flags and they do the rings at the end. And this is where everyone takes their pictures. You gotta be waiting like five hours for this picture. I did this five minutes before I left on the plane because I wasn't gonna wait, you know? So like as we packed the trucks, I ran over, took a picture and then, and then ran back. Coincidentally, as I look around the room, if anybody is a double XL or wears a size 14 shoe, I got all kinds of stuff. I have more than I need to give away. Anna would be very happy um, if I could give some of this stuff away, but we got a lot of, a lot of gear to give away out of this. So the, I think the, other, the coolest thing that happens in any of these villages things, situations, Olympic Village, Pan American Village, World University Game Villages, anything that I've been to in these environments is the cafeteria. For a lot of reasons, right? Uh, obviously the natural reason, right? Um, but also, uh, honestly, if I had to get a glimpse in my human view and my worldly view of what heaven would look like, I think it would be this cafeteria, it would be this dining hall. I'll tell you why. Not because there's delicious food and you can go eat as much as you want, right? That's, and that's the natural one. But there's 206 countries eating in the same room at the same time. Of all different faiths, of all different walks of life, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. So <clears throat> this one is a little harder. This one was harder because if you look closely, I didn't get good pictures, I'm sorry. If you get interested in this stuff and you hit Google, there's all kinds of people who took good pictures and videos, right? This is, I didn't do a great job. But if you look, you, we're, we were in uh, compartments. So we had to go through a whole protocol. So when you walk in, you need to put gloves on, right? You had to just give all your stuff in. You gotta put glo sanitize, put gloves on, um, temperature check, right? You go in, you know, the, keep your mask on the whole time. You know, in your gloves, you get your, you get your plate, and then when you sit down, uh, there's a plexiglass in front of you, plexiglass to the to next of you, so you couldn't even really have a conversation with the person next to you. It was like, this is kind of limited, this interaction that I'm gonna describe, which I think is, is a beautiful part of the games. So a lot of people would get their phones, and, and this is when I would talk to the wife, to Anna and the kids sometimes. You know, you put your, put your phone and you just FaceTime, because all you're limited is in this little, this little space. Um, <clears throat> if you took all those things outside, we've, we've experienced this before, again, I think this is what a human view, view of heaven would look like. You're walking down an aisle like this, and then it's Uzbekistan, it's Russia, it's South Africa, then it's the Cook Islands, which somehow have Olympians, right, in the Cook Islands, right? Then there's, you know, uh, Brazil, USA, Egypt, blah, 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 you know, all, every country in the world you can think of, and you're walking right, and you're right through this, and all of them are in their own garb, you know, like a lot of, a lot of the African countries were in, the, in, the, in, the, in their African garb, and it's this, it's this amazing, like, most inspirational, uplift, that's, that's the best part, right? It was a little limited this time because of COVID, but just to see the entire world in one place, 206 countries in one place at once, you see God, right? And I was a geek because every time I saw someone in an Egypt shirt, I would just run right to them, right? And so like, I would, it didn't matter. I'd be like, oh, this is cool, cool, cool. And then if I in Egypt, then I'd be like, Adina, Amis, 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 you know? I'm like, double XL, you know? And we try to try to trade a shirt. No one would do it because of COVID. But you know, uh, uh, we, there, <coughs> we always try to find, you know, everyone would try to find their, their home countries and, and be able to do this. But I think um, more than anything, this is a place that's like the level playing field. Right? Get your basic needs at this place um, where all these countries can exist in one place together. I say that because, on the, again, on the last day, these, this is the Egyptian uh, boxing team. These are two Egyptian boxers, you know, uh, that, were, that were there. Um, yeah. The, so that dude in the bright yellow ship ship, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll beat you up, man. Yeah? So he's, he's the 81 kilogram champion of Africa. Uh, he's the, he was the best boxer in Africa, beat, beat everybody in Africa, um, and then obviously got to go to the Olympics and finished, you know, I think he finished ninth or 10th, you know, uh, when we were there, but he was, uh, and the guy to the right, is, he, that guy's 22 years old, and he's, he was the next weight class up, like 100 kilograms, you know, or something. He's, he's the heavyweight, you know, um, 
uh, guy that was in there. They do a great job of wearing their masks, as you can see, you know, um, and they, uh, uh, but <laughs> Egypt was a, uh, Egypt was a force. I'll, I'll mention Egypt a couple times in this thing, but they, they actually had a great games um, uh, in this. Uh, one thing, another reference to Egypt, do you guys know who this guy is? Ibrahim, Ibrahim Hamdut, yeah. Um, so as we speak, the Paralympics are going on. So if you want to see another place where God exists, is to watch the Paralympics. This is the most inspiring thing you'll see. If you have an hour today, watch the Paralympics somewhere. If you're, anytime you, where you guys, it's on NBC all the time. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. I saw three people nod their heads, which means not everybody knows, but Ibrahim, oh, the guy on the left, he's Egyptian, right? Train accident as a child, train accident as a child, no arms. Been playing ping pong his whole life. Keeps the, the paddle in his mouth. The ball is on his foot. So he picks the ball up. You can watch this. Uh, you've seen it, yeah? Uh, uh, he picks the ball up with his toes, serves it up himself, and plays. Unreal. Unreal. He'd beat you too, Mark. I'm telling you. He, and he's, he's better than all of us. Like, he's had slams that are, like, I mean, we're talking like cross-court slams, and this guy can do it with no arms. This Brazilian swimmer on the, on the right, imagine swimming backstroke, those of you who swim, with no arms. Can you swim backstroke with no arms? How do, how do you do that, right? I mean, it's un, I mean, seeing God's handiwork in these people is, that's the most beautiful thing you'll see. And then going back to the privilege and the inequity that comes in when I was talking about the other Olympics. I mean, what about this? Think about these guys. Think about this when you're, think about, now I'm looking at you guys, I didn't talk to you guys about this last week, high school class. Think about this when anything, you have to do anything hard in your life. Right? Think about this next time the barista gets your order wrong at Starbucks. Right? Like, think, think, think about the challenges that these people have had to overcome right, to get to this point. And this guy would beat all of us at ping pong with just his mouth. Uh, and even this morning, people are just learning this. This I think is the other power of the Olympics that we don't know about is like uh, 2012, 2016, there was social media, but there wasn't this much social media. And because no one was there, because no one was allowed to go to this one, the coverage and the social media numbers are like through the roof. This guy's been in three Olympics, and most of us are just hearing his story now, right? Most of us are just hearing his story now, because now it's everyone's all. Oh, what do I? How do I find out? I got to go to Instagram to find out everything, right? I got to Instagram to find everything. Now we're just learning about him, but he's been to three Olympics. A lot of times in the Paralympics too, which is another interesting thing about the Paralympics is the average age of the athlete at the Paralympics goes way up. It goes way up. So you'll find 45-year-old athletes at the Paralympics. You'll see people in their 50s competing. There are people just so it's it's it's, it's again about what your ability is and what you're able to do. Um, but I would, again, highly encourage to watch, watch the Paralympics and, and, and see God in some of these people. Um, this, is, uh, this is our women's team. Another thing that happened that I would say when you're gone and you're by yourself, so something we had to overcome, right, for the athletes, was that being away from your family for almost a month, and for our women's team it was a month. The men were gone for about three weeks. The women were gone for a, a month. If you're gonna be gone for a month away from your family, your kids, right, all these things, usually you would see these people to get inspired or you know, there's a way to decompress during the games and things like that. So we had to go out of our way to create pathways for them to have like a touch with home, right? And so what each of the women are carrying here is uh, we actually had all the younger athletes, the, the, the 14 and under national team, women's national team, which we keep about 50, 60 of them in, around because you know, it's hard to tell if a 13-year-old's gonna be an Olympian or not, right? We keep as only of them around. And they all wrote letters to their favorite uh, player on the team. <clears throat> it was pretty cool. I told you I would lose it at some point, but it was, it was a good moment. Uh, so anyway, we had to keep connecting, keep connecting these people along the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I think it's interesting to watch this generation of, of people, though, is how close they are to their parents. So we had, you know, you're talking about a 24-year-old athlete who's, like, dying because their parents aren't there, you know? It's different than us, for sure, right? It's different than us, for sure, because we would relish in that moment, right? Like, I think, or would have relished and did relish in that moment. This, this is different, and they may not appreciate me saying this or understand me saying this now, but I think that's how these guys are going to be, right? They're going to need you there, and for a lot of people, that's, that, that's their lifeline. Their mom and dad came to every one of their games growing up, right? Came to everything that they did, you know, and not having that uh, connection and that support was really, really difficult for a lot of them, really difficult. So people were just break, constantly breaking down, right? Constantly breaking down, crying. There was like moments, emotional moments every day of people just losing it, right? Just losing it on a daily basis. Um, so our, how did we get over this, right? Letters, FaceTimes, videos, everything. Like anything we can imagine that we can make some sort of connection back to home, we would do just to keep everybody feeling, feeling okay. So our theme during the games, and I said this to the high school class last week, was something called Kaizen, right? This is a Japanese philosophy, right? It was like, how do we continuously improve ourselves on a daily basis? How do I get myself to, I'm not done being the best version of myself, how do I keep improving? And for us being there three and a half weeks, you could get better by the end than you were in the beginning. You can improve the whole way through. Or if I, and, and this happens all the time in the Olympics, somebody loses a first round heat, and then they end up winning in the end, right? Like, how do you keep improving, improving? This was a Chinese, or excuse me, a Japanese philosophy that they use across the board, right? Um, so Kaizen, how do we continuously improve? And, and this is as we get closer to understanding our orthodoxy and our faith and what really matters, right? It's this process, it's being process oriented, right? So at no point during the games, zero, zero point in the games, and some people are surprised when I say this when we give talks, when I have to give a lot of talks about like, I give a lot of these talks about this stuff to, um, you know, how do you create a high-performance culture, how do you create a high-performance pipeline, all these things to, we've had to do for some companies, how to do for, and obviously have to do it for teams and different organizations, and my own organization are the younger ones. And people are always surprised that we never talk about winning. Like, at no point are we sitting in the room and say, we gotta win. Hey, we gotta win. We're gonna win today, right? Like, today is about winning. It nev it's never discussed. All winning is is a byproduct of trying to do the right thing. All winning is is a byproduct of continuously trying and putting in a process that makes you successful, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. You know, so for us, it was just if we can just keep getting better through the course of this, we're going to be okay, right? If we keep getting better through this, we're we're going to be all right. And I've talked to, <coughs> I've given talks in the church before about this this myth of the linear path because we all think that somewhere along the way, right, you just start playing your sport, you start playing your instrument, you start you know, whatever skill you're trying to develop, that skill development, and skill development just goes like this. I start here, and I just keep getting better every day, and I just keep going, 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 and at some point, I'll be great. That could be the furthest thing from the truth, right? And most of us know that. Anybody who's really tried to do something at a high level, this is, this is, this is a myth. There's no linear path. And there's, the same thing goes for our spiritual life. It's not like we're born, right? And then we just keep getting more spiritual every day, right? I get closer, closer to God. I keep ascending, all right? And then boom, I'm in heaven, right? There's no way that, 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 that nobody lives their life like that. Not one saint ever lived their life like that. You know? Not one person. So this is a myth, this idea of a limit. So this is really what it looks like. What progress, what development actually really looks like is this course, right? Everything that we're trying to accomplish then, if, we, if I say win, we're going to win, and people actually figure out that there's all this hard stuff along the way of winning, they're not going to want to do it. Everything we want to do is on, a, on the side of hard. <laughs> Everything you want in life is on the other side of hard. It's on the other side of a challenge. It's on the other side of something difficult. It's not on the other side of convenience. 
And yet, every day for ourselves, including in this church, in our schools, in our homes, we seek and we fight for convenience. We fight for, if there's one thing that I got out of this experience and how hard it was, is that there's nothing that could have replicated how hard it was. And we're constantly looking for convenience for ourselves, and we're constantly looking for convenience. There's no substitute. There's blessings in the struggle. Hmm? There's a blessing to be, to, be, to be in that struggle for us, for some more than others, right? But why then, when it comes time to plan our kids' lives, right? When it comes time to plan our own lives, are we looking for the easiest path to make it happen? There's no, there's no, there's no lesson in that. There's no struggle in that. There's no strife in that. How do we teach strife? And we're, I mean, I'm speaking to myself as well, right? Like, how do we teach strife to, to young people? How do we tell them to, to struggle? And they have every single thing they've ever wanted at the touch of their fingertips. Anything they've ever wanted. Any, all of us. Anything we've ever wanted right now can be delivered to our house in less than an hour, right? Everything we want, everything you want in life is on the other side of hard. It's on the other side of hard. You know, how can we bust this myth up? To go there? Because the other problem that comes with us, if you think there's a myth, a linear path to everything, if you think that there's this pathway that just goes really smooth, then you're gonna end up getting these rigid expectations. You lose context of what's happening. You're like, well, we lost a game. Everyone's gonna start football season now, right? You guys are all big, I know there's a lot of football fans here, right? I'm looking right at Nico, okay? And what's gonna happen, right? When, you're, when the Bears go, you know, 11 and five, right? And everyone's like, they're having a great season, and they get in the playoffs and they lose. Oh, they shouldn't have lost. They were doing so well. Everything was going so great, and then they lost. So that was, why did you create that expectation for yourself, right? We create expectations, oh, everything's going great. We want to keep going. And then we lose that. We lose sight of what's going on, and we start judging people. You guys did it to me. Everybody did it to me. I'll tell you this. When people say, talk about the Olympics, no one said, go talk about the, the men's team. I spend more time managing and developing the men's pipeline in America than I do the women's. Men finished sixth place. Not one of you has said a word about it. Yeah. Why did, why did we become obsessed with winning, right? We became obsessed with the gold. We became obsessed with success. We became obsessed with, oh, number one. Those guys worked just as hard, made, actually made harder sacrifices in their life. Someone, if anybody was asking me before what they did, 21 guys left Europe, I'm, uh, left to go play professionally in Europe for uh, two years leading up to these Tokyo games because we couldn't do anything here. We all had to send them abroad. So when I'm doing my exit interviews with the athletes right now, they're like, hey, coach, uh, by the way, I'm seeing my mom for the first time in two years. Can I call you back? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, take your time. Call, call me back, Habibi, you know? You guys didn't ask me about that because we think that the linear path, you think you judged. I walked into my kid's swim class right away. They're like, oh, congrats on the gold, bud. Everyone knows, right? It's swim class, so everybody knows what's going on. And they're like, you guys couldn't do better than six on the men's side? I was like, okay, yeah, good to see you too, Habibi. You know, like, good to see you. Have a good lesson, and I walked, I walked out. So why, why do we think that somebody who can commit their whole life, this judgment of ourselves, right? Now take this back to our spirituality, right? This, judge, this quick judgment. When you watch somebody fall in their life, when you watch somebody sin, when you watch somebody suffer, when you watch somebody go through this, because we think there's a linear path, because we've all convinced ourselves life is on a linear path, then we immediately start judging that person. Oh, they're, well, they're a sinner. Look at them. Pfft, what a screw up. You know? What about school? I'm looking at a bunch of teachers right now too, right? When that kid gets a C on their test and they get to fail a test, pff, I, thought was, I thought you were an A student. Well, you should be doing better. Haven't I been teaching you all year to learn all this stuff and you fail at the end? Because we think this is how it's going to go. There is no, there is no linear path. That's a, that's a myth. That's a, that's a joke, right? Everything we want is on the other side of hard. Everything's going to have some failure and, 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 some, and some pathway to it. Can you imagine being that Olympian? If I go back to the Olympics again for a second, imagine being that track runner or that swimmer, right, that lost their race, they had their whole life, 
right, their whole life, and they lose the race by 0.1 second. Can you imagine being that person? There's a lot of those people, because I just told you 11,000 people compete at the Olympic Games. 11,000, and a handful win a medal. A handful win a medal. So I trained my whole life, and because somebody has a longer fingernail than me, right, touching the wall, I lose. And now you're going to judge that person. Oh, how could you get second, man? How could you get ninth? You're ninth in the world? You're the be ninth best swimmer in the world in your event? What's wrong with you? This is how we think, it's, right? This is what we do. It's what we do. So how can we put this into context, right, for ourselves, right? How do we put this into context as we, as we go about it? Um, I put this up because uh, would you, I asked that question, I put in my speaker notes here. I would ask, would you have asked me to come if we didn't, if we didn't win the gold medal? No. No. You wouldn't, maybe want, this wouldn't have been as, you wouldn't have said, hey, John, you dedicated your whole life to this. You worked five, you know, five years for this stuff. You put in all this effort. Maybe you should talk to the church about it. Would anyone have said that? Not even a silver. Because we win, right? It's got to be the gold, right? It's got to be the gold. It's a winner go home, right? If you're not first, you're last, right? You know, this is, uh, uh, Mark is, Mark is like Ricky Bobby, you know? If you're not first, you're last. This is what we want, all right? And after hearing, <laughs> we can, I told you we can laugh. This is going to be fun. But I tell you, after hearing your talk today, my goal is to be like Medimina and take the medal and throw it on the ground, you know? It's worthless. It's dust. It's dust. That's why it was so important to hear that today. Because I know what truly matters, I can enjoy this because it seems to matter. It's okay. And we got to wear this thing for, again, how long I had the gold medal around my neck was a total of 12 minutes. Coaches, athletes, and directors don't get it. Only, only, excuse me, only the athletes get medals. Only athletes get medals in the Olympics. And I like that. They're the only ones who deserve it. They earned it. We didn't earn it. Yeah, I worked hard. I did, we all dedicated ourselves. But they're the ones who... They're the ones doing the thing, right? And when, and when on Judgment Day, which will come at some point, it's gonna, all going to be in front of the church at some point, right, like we learned today, I don't ever want to see that thing, you know, near me. That's how we went. But we're obsessed with this winning. We're so obsessed with the winning that we mark and the measurement for success is this, is the medal count, right? That's what we, we said. We say we're so obsessed with, like, for, for us in the United States, how we judge whether or not it was a good Olympics or a bad Olympics is based on this chart. So we won the, the medal count. I know it's small. So United States is number one. We won 113 medals at the Olympics. And more importantly than that, the other secondary is how many gold medals we win, because we only care about gold, right? So the second thing we won was uh, uh, we won the 30, 39 gold medals versus China's 38. So we usually win the overall count a lot. But then they're like, oh, well, we got to make sure we win the most, right? And so actually when our women's team won and then women's volleyball, and if you watch the women's indoor volleyball, won the next day, that was a huge, that was the 39th gold medal, and everyone nuts. And so there's people who are getting raises, there's people who are getting bonuses, all at the Olympic Committee level, because we're the winners, right? Which I can't tell you I disagree with more, right? Like, it blows my mind, right, that we're going to tell somebody, you're going you're to dedicate your whole life to this thing, you're going to sacrifice, we can use the word sacrifice loosely, right? Work hard through all this, right, and give everything to it, and if you get ninth, we're going to cut your funding. And that's what they do to us. I have to then go the next, in the next few weeks, give a presentation, and I have to explain to them why we need more funding to the Olympic Committee. And what they're going to point at is this. They're going to go back and say, well, did you win medals? And what's your medal potential for the next time, right? And this drives me crazy. I look at this thing, this drives me crazy, because we're so obsessed with winning and this idea of what success looks like that we create this metric, this false metric. This does not equate to success for me. I would have left with the same experience, the same lessons, everything if we didn't win. Right? And we do this in church all the time. We do this, every nonprofit 
we really think about what, what is the metric. Marcia, you said it again today, and I really appreciate this. What is the true metric of what we're, if we're doing a good job in here? We try to create metrics for ourselves in here, right? What metrics do we use to say the church is going well? Imagine I thought about this, and I said this, I think, the, the first talk I gave. Imagine if we created this metal chart, and it was every church in the diocese, and on the right was whether or not people got into heaven. That's the end result of orthodoxy, right? We're trying to get to heaven, right? right? So then it would be like, you know, St. Mark, number one, they, this year in 2020 in the uh, uh, spiritual fiscal year, right, that they got uh, 45 people in heaven. Uh, second place was St. George. They got 30 people in heaven, right? St. Paul's is, you know, sitting at 15th. They got a two or three, you know, along the way, right? And that's the metric we would use. It would make no sense, right? That would make no sense for us. But we make up metrics to think that church is going well. What is something we think of attendance, right? Oh, if people are in church, then the church is successful, right? Attendance works. We pray for it. I sarcastically have the high school class do this every week. We pray for the people who didn't come this week to come next week, right? We've been saying that since we were kids. Oh, because if they're not here, maybe they're not close to God, right? Attendance matters, right? Maybe fundraising matters, right? Which church can fundraise the most? Which church can build the better facilities, right? All these things. What metrics do we use? These are meaningless. This is as meaning. The metrics I just described are just as meaningless as, as this because none of it really matters. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. Unironically, this is what our retreat next week is about, right? Is how for the high schoolers, we're going on our retreat next week. And, and I say unironically because it's not ironic, right? That it'll be about how we align our values with our behavior. But most organizations, nonprofit organizations that have these idealistic goals like Olympism and the Olympics or churches and, and all these like really good for good nonprofit organizations, they set these lofty, lofty goals. But do there, does the behavior match the value? Do they behave in the way of what they value? My guess is usually not. Not my guess. My experience so far for myself is that they do not. That people will behave far different than the values they espouse, right? The things they, they, they say, very different than the things they do. So how do we align our values with our behavior? Let's set up a spiritual competition, right? Me and you, let's see who's more spiritual, one-on-one, -on -one, right? Oh, then we'll get the church involved. Well, St. Mark won the spiritual competition this year versus St. John, so St. Mark's the spiritual competition winner, right? Why do we have to create a metric? What's the metric for us? Like we said it before, the metric might be not to bury the lead, right? Not to fear death. It's to live a life that didn't fear death, that actually valued all the things that we try to value. That I don't fear, that I'm joyful in my life and I have peace in my life because I know what really matters because I know it's dust. So I'll, I'll stop at this, uh, at this verse, right? So I think about this a lot. When we go and things get, things get really hard, uh, I think of St. Paul uh, in, in the Corinthians, right? There's a lot of, uh, we think of Christian athletes, there's a lot of, there are a lot of Christian athletes, like talking about walking around the village and the, and the cafeteria and stuff. There are a lot of Christian athletes, right? And tattoos of crosses and... Uh, you know, uh, Bible impromptu Bible studies, you know, that would happen. The, the Christian athlete, the Tim Tebow model, right? Like, these things happen. We see it, right? We see it out there. And they use a lot of the same verses over and over again, right? Which is, you know, strength, uh, things have their strength. Iron sharpens iron, right? People say that one a lot. The one that resonates with me the most is this, because in competition, in war, in battle, in struggle, in the strife to try to become someone like this, you become weak. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am a well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. 
for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that means we revel in persecution. We say this about persecution, but we revel in strife. So I mean, that means when, when we were out there, like, bring it on. Bring it to me. Bring the, bring the grind. This is going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard because everything I want is on the other side of hard. And if I want it, I got to go through hard. And I'm going to look beaten up. I'm going to look weathered. I'm going to look tattered. I'm going to get my butt kicked over and over again. But I know when I do, in that weakness, in that moment in me, when I am, when I am at my worst, when I'm at my absolute bottom, that's when he comes in. When I am weak, then I am strong. So we take pride in this. We take pride in, in the struggle. We take pride in difficulties. And then instead of being goal-oriented, we become process-oriented, right? Then it's not about winning. It's not about going to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven. No one really wants to die. So we don't think about the end goal. We don't think, oh, we're going to win today. We're going to achieve this. We say, no, what am I, how am I going to live my life that eventually those things could happen? That those that become a byproduct of those things. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <sighs> Thanks for letting me get my soapbox for a little bit. But uh, if uh, yeah. I also said I'd, I'd have fun if you have any questions or anything. That's why I threw pictures up, right? Just because I know I do understand the. Uh, I'm starting to understand the blessing that that was, right? Being able to experience something like this and. Uh, getting to walk through the cafeteria and seeing all those countries and all those people. It's, uh, I got to see God, you know, very close. So it's, um, I'm grateful for that as well. Yeah, yeah B. So what Michael asked is like, how do, how do I reconcile um, what I really know to be true versus um, what sponsors, funders, and maybe the athletes too, right? Yeah, the athletes and like, I think for the athletes, it's, it's actually quite um, easy because we talk like, I talk like this to the athletes. I talk like this to the coaches because if you attach meaning, too much meaning to these things, like we talk, like we talk about in, ortho, in, our, in our orthodoxy and our faith, when you attach meaning to worldly things, right, then grave disappointment happens, right, and you're just constantly disappointed. I don't talk to them necessarily about it in the orthodox sense unless they, unless they want to, right, or in a Christian sense they want to, but we talk about, it's, that's why we don't talk about winning. So the athletes and the coaches and the performance, that's easy, because we're just like, well, what are we doing today? Oh, what are we doing on this trip? Okay, we want to go to Europe for four weeks. We're going to we're going to hit these countries. These are the training things we're going to do, and that's all we talk about, right? And we know that that one piece is part of the periodization of a four-year, five-year plan. And by the way, it's not five years; it's four years, right? This one was five, which was even that's why it was so much harder, right? We had an extra year to fight through, and this is the these are the little things we have to do. So it's actually quite easy. But how do I reconcile talking to them? That's a really good question. I, I think that's uh, I have I'm a really bad liar. You know, I'm a really bad liar, uh, and so I struggle with not being honest with those people, women sponsors, or like the Olympic Committee comes in. Uh, I've probably gotten myself into some trouble before, um, and this particularly with the men's team, because here's an Olympic Committee that gives us money to help fund these athletes, right? And by the way, USA, this is another interesting thing, US, United States of America is one of the only countries in the world where the government doesn't support Olympic athletes. We get zero money from the federal government, so our government doesn't care. The president will show up and cheer for every Olympics for the last 100 years, right, and say, 
great job, we get zero money from them. So there's something called the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee that fundraises and they become the arm of, like, uh, of the Olympics. So when I go to the way they have to, they, because they have limited funding, right? And this is versus another country, like if you're Novak Djokovic, right? And you win a gold medal in the Olympics for Serbia, right? He gets a million dollars and he gets a house on the, uh, you know, in, in Belgrade. And you know, there's a great, if you can again, another great article look up, there's a amount of money that you get per country based on medals, if you've seen some of these things, right? America, you get nothing. So then you have this limited resources, right? So where I'm going with this is then within their limited resources, they have to find a way to divide those resources up. And the way they divide the resources up is if you're gonna win a medal, I'll give you money. If not, you're not gonna get any money. And so I've probably gotten myself in trouble with them because I have to tell them like, well, are your men gonna win a medal? And I'm like, well, if you look at a 30 year snapshot, we've won one medal in the Olympics in 2008, in 30 years. Right? So one time we got a silver medal, for the most part, we're five through eight or worse. This time we got six. This is the second best finish in 25 years for our men. It should be great. So I talk to them and I have to say like, I think you should keep funding us, right? <laughs> I think you should give us money. We're very close. Like we can make it, right? I think, I think we can medal, even though, you know, I know statistically speaking, right? Based on the competition in the world and based on the, the landscape, it's gonna be very difficult. It's very, very difficult. But I, I, think, I think more often than not, uh, being honest and direct, you know, will, ends up being, being more beneficial. Terrible. I'm terrible. I'm a lousy liar, but a fantastic eater. Yeah, and so uh, that's why that's why the dining hall was so good. Yeah. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Anything other than that, right? So imagine if it went the other way. Like if the diocese was like, we're going to give churches, but these churches have to. What metrics would the diocese use to fund churches to seed churches around? Right. You know, you would have to think of a metric that was much more complicated than winning or losing, right? You'd have to come with something that was more meaningful. What I think they should do is they should, metri they, the metrics should be based on our service and care for the athletes. That, the metric should be, are we creating an environment that allows for that athlete to develop and achieve their best, right? And if we've created that environment and we've created the pathway for them, then they're probably gonna do pretty well, which is what, what we've been able to do. But now, but it goes the other way, and you go to someone and you say, oh, you're, imagine being a teacher and going to the kid, oh, you got a C on this test instead of an A, so we're going to give you less paper, less pencils, right? Less things to help you do well. That's just backwards, but this is how we do things in, in America in general, right? It's like, oh, if you're not doing well, we're going to take resources from you, right? Oh, you're failing? Uh, pick yourself up your bootstraps and get better, you know? You can make it happen. It's, it's not smart. So I think you have to create metrics where, just like for schools, or is the school, I don't care what the test score is, I don't care what your average you know, test scores are at the school. I want to know, are, is the school functioning properly, right? And are kids happy there? Yeah, it's a great story. Um, uh, I was in a, in a lecture about nonprofits once, and someone said the federal government decided to take away funding from the uh, free breakfast program in the, in the metro DC area, right? And there's the metric they were using is they thought by giving free breakfast to the kids, test scores would go up. That's what they wanted. They said, test scores will go up if we give everybody free hot breakfast every morning, but test scores stayed the same. And they said, well, we gotta get rid of the breakfast thing. The breakfast thing's not working. And anyone with two cents and logical brain was like, well, that's not the goal. The goal wasn't to give them breakfast so they could get an A on the test. Breakfast, <laughs> the goal of the breakfast so they wouldn't go hungry, so they could be fed, right? So what are, what are, if we're in the, whatever the nonprofit is, whatever the goal of the organization is, isn't the, that's not the metric. We have to find the right metrics, right? Metric is, is the kid hungry? All right, let's feed him. 
Is he comfortable? Great. Then the results will come, right? It's really interesting, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't hide it. I certainly don't hide it, you know? They know. We all follow each other on social media, right? So if I post something on, about, about orthodoxy, they see it, you know? So some will ask, some will, some will engage, others not so much, yeah. Uh, I'm distant from that, right? So meaning I don't coach the team, right? So as the director, I'm with it. Um, but if I was at a religious institution, like Luke at Korean Lutheran, do you guys pray before uh, games? Yeah, right? At Bosco or wherever you guys are, you pray before games, so yeah. And if I was in a situation like that, I would. And I have in the past, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Henry. No. He asks if, if uh, faith or religion has ever uh, come up or like be a hindrance to the um, future jobs or anything. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I'm a bad liar, right? So, you know, I think trying, my goal in life is not to win gold medals or achieve. My goal is to try to be my authentic self, right? And if I can live with my authentic self, then I, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and so people have to accept that one, one way or the other, you know? Thank you, Mark. Um, time to pray. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys again for the opportunity and questions all the time. We're here, but let's all pray for each other as we get through this. Um.